0: You're listening to Family Pedals, the podcast for people questioning the status quo and living life a little bit differently. I'm your host, Sarah Copper. Today, I am talking with Chris Wharton, a professor at Arizona State University and part of a one car family living in the suburbs of Phoenix. We talk about how he bikes in the urban sprawl, even in the hottest parts of the summer, and how incorporating active transportation affects your health, wealth, happiness, and sustainability. Chris, I am so glad to have you on the show.
1: It's my pleasure to be here.
0: I am especially excited to have you here because you are a suburb dweller, which provides a really different perspective. Right, right. When I think of what comes to mind when I hear people becoming less reliant on cars and moving toward active transportation, my image is of a dense, walkable neighborhood right by the city center. But your family lives in the suburbs of a major metropolitan area, and you're making it work with just one car.
1: That's right. Yeah. Uh, We sit in the middle of the urban sprawl of Phoenix, Arizona, which is as sprawling an area as you could possibly find. It's all open desert. And so the development is just going out in all directions. We aren't in any kind of density at all. Really, yeah, everything is spread out from our schools to grocery stores, um, our jobs, daycare, all of it.
0: So we'll get into some of the details of how you're making that work in just a minute. But let's start by just having you give a really brief introduction to who you are, what you do.
1: Sure. My name is Chris Wharton. I am an associate professor of nutrition at Arizona State University. I'm also a senior sustainability scientist. And so basically that means I think a lot about healthy and sustainable diets, but I also think about behaviors that contribute to health more broadly in sustainable ways. Everything from eating behaviors to physical activity behaviors, screen time behaviors, and the like. And it's a fun place to be in. You know, a lot of researchers talk about me-search mm-hmm. in their research, and uh, that definitely applies to me. Um, a lot of the things that I'm interested in researching are things that are easily applied practically in people's lives, especially, including my own. I spend a lot of time thinking about and writing about those things. Uh, my wife and I live in a town called Gilbert, Arizona, which is in the Phoenix metro area, and we have two young children, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And so we have distributed lives. Um, They go to daycare. My wife is currently working full-time, as am I. And so, yeah, we're, we're making it work in the suburbs of very hot Arizona.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how you started making that shift? Did it have to do with your research, or was there some specific event that made you start thinking more about how can we become less reliant on a car?
1: Yeah, there were probably there was a confluence of events and things happening that made me think differently about it, because we, we've enjoyed, you know we enjoy being active, but, and I've read a lot about active commuting and, and things that contribute to your health that also can be more affordable and, and utilitarian, but hadn't really applied it. Until our first son was coming along, and he was soon to be born. we had at the time two cars a pickup truck that I was driving around and this used Prius that my wife has and we realized the pickup would work for a little bit but it would start to be really difficult getting a car seat it was an extended cab pickup so you could get a car seat in there but it really wasn't the safest thing in the world right so there was this logistical limitation that was cropping up i was also thinking a lot about and concerned a lot about our finances at the time i was just wondering how do we fit this third person into our into our lives and what the costs are related to that and it was around then that uh, my wife, Kelsey, introduced me to the Mr. Money Mustache blog.
0: Yes, I am very familiar with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's, he's often one of the influencer, influencers and influences of people uh, who are thinking about these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I voraciously read through his blog. And that was something of a shift in mindset that contributed to like the logistical concerns and financial concerns that I had. And it all aligned with... My thinking about how to make people's lives in in a practical, very practical sense, more sustainable, healthier, more financially sound all at once. Um, My research was heading in that direction. And then these things happened. And I started thinking, oh, there are actually ways we could probably make our lives more efficient that we get all these multiple positive gains out of. And then we started thinking, you know, we probably don't need this car. It doesn't serve a growing family well. Uh, We can get by with a Prius. And it led us to reexamining our immediate environment and the other ways that we could get around. And that's when we really started thinking about active commuting via bicycle.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to me that you started that shift after you had your son, because I found the first year of both of my children's lives, the most difficult time to be (laughs) using active transportation in so many ways. And that it was much easier before, and it's become much easier as they've gotten older. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting that you're doing it in a challenging place to start with in the suburbs and making that switch at a challenging phase of life to incorporate that as a family.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, those are these are the challenging years. Uh, I feel like we're still in them, although coming out of them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and, and there was a lot of experimentation, I think, that came with it. But the nice thing is, I think, starting it right then... Usually it's major changes in life and lifestyle that allow actually for, for major changes in behavior. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something you see a lot in behavior change research. When people move, for example, from one city or one state to another, if they present themselves or adopt a new behavior uh, in, a, you know, in a certain way when they get to the new place, it's actually a lot easier to, to maintain that behavior only because you know, you're in a new setting. People identify you as doing these sorts of things. You kind of take on a little bit of a new identity from that perspective. So major life changes actually are a great time to make big changes like this. And it was my wife who said, you know, let's just park the truck for a week and start figuring out how we can use the one car and and try that experiment. And it really didn't affect us very much at all. And then we just, we left the car parked for longer and then eventually decided, okay, we can sell this thing. Then came the experimental phase of, okay, what's the equipment we need? When can we be actively commuting our youngest, you know, our baby at the time? Mm -hmm. and how do we handle that versus driving around in the car. And it just took some steps to kind of figure out the equipment, the systems, all of that. And once you get the system in place, it becomes normal like anything else.
0: Right. So we've talked a little bit about how you've started biking, but your family also carpools and uses public transit. That's right. Can you talk about what a typical week looks like for you guys getting around and how you balance those different things?
1: Yes. So... As a professor, I'm kind of all over the valley with different commitments, different meetings, and with community members and things. Most of the time, though, I'm either I'm either working from home, which is a minority of the time, or I'm commuting into the Tempe campus of Arizona State University, or commuting all the way into Phoenix, which uh, Gilbert is east of those locations, so it's about half the distance to Tempe, and then twice that distance to to Phoenix. So. The majority of the time, my wife and I will carpool in together. Mm-hmm. So she works at Arizona State University as well. So we can drive, drop off our kids at daycare and then drive to Tempe and then get to work. When I need to get to Phoenix, um, usually I will drive in with her and then take, we have a light rail system and I'll take the light rail into Phoenix from there. On occasion, I will either bike into Tempe or bike to my meetings and other things in what we call the East Valley around where I live when I'm working from home. And then that's when I primarily depend on my bike. Sometimes I'll bike into Tempe, but that, that's a 20 mile haul. So that's uh less frequent. So in any given week, it's probably a couple days I'm bike commuting and working from home or in and around the East Valley. At least a couple of days, we are carpooling in together to Tempe and then staying there. And then one, sometimes two days a week, I'm taking light rail or the bus to get into Phoenix.
0: Okay. And I believe you talked before about how sometimes you also take your kids to daycare Mm -hmm. via the trailer, or at least I think you were doing that during your sabbatical time.
1: And I'll do that during the, during regular semesters as well. It depends, you know, usually on on my schedule when my earliest meeting is. But yeah, so we have in, in this area of the Valley, the Valley of the Sun is what it's called. uh, (laughs) We have a lot of canals. In fact, more canals than Venice is (laughs) what people like to say. So canals are the way we distribute our water around all of the municipalities in the valley. And we also have a lot of power line trails. And the two of them coupled together make for an incredible network of bicycle trails. So we actually have one canal plus some power line trail that connects me almost the entire way without having to take any roads to where my kids' daycare facility is. And we have we found a trailer that works really well. The kids are small enough. So they really enjoy being in the trailer together. And when the weather is nice, which is the majority of the year, I can trek them into daycare and then get to work from there. And that's about a 40-minute bike ride to their location, another 40 minutes from there to get to Tempe, for example, if I was going to bike onto Tempe.
0: Get your workout in, in addition to getting where you need to go. For sure. So you've already told us that you have a trailer to get the kids around. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about the specific bikes that you use and what you do and don't like about your current setup?
1: For sure. It took us a little bit, like I said, to figure out the exact equipment. We had started with a trailer, the brand of which I can't remember now. But, you know, we were putting our youngest son into that trailer when he was maybe 10 or 11 months old. Mm-hmm. And that's right around the time you can start doing that as long as I have good neck control and such it was a poor design. The engineering was awful. And so he would just continuously slide down off the seat (laughs) into a little puddle, basically at the front of the trailer. (laughs) Um, that wasn't working for us. So we decided to invest some money into a Burley trailer and Burleys are, they have some pretty top of the line type of trailers. We have the Burley Encore and that one works really well for us. It can seat two kids and hold up to a hundred pounds. And the seats will declamp and, and kind of fold down. So if you want to do grocery shopping, which we do on occasion with the trailer, you can do that too. Mm-hmm. So that's the trailer we use. I've got a Trek bike, a Trek 7.1 FX. So it's a slightly older model and it's a beginner model. That new costs 400 to 450 as well. But it's been incredibly trustworthy. I've had to replace the tires and things and, and many spokes and have actually a, a, one of the wheels rebuilt. It's a beginner's commuter bike, and so I don't think anybody was expecting to have anyone put the miles on it that I do. Right. But with some fixes and, and setting it up in other ways, it's good to go. And I've been using it now for almost four years, and it has held up really, really well. So it's not much of an investment to, to have a trustworthy bike. On the bike, I have a Topeak bag system on the back with a rack. And so that plus the trailer... Is everything I need in terms of storage capacity to bring the kids, all their gear for daycare, and then everything I need, my food and clothes and toiletries if I'm gonna take a shower on campus to get myself to daycare and then to to work. And that's really it. And uh, it works really well. I could definitely I mean, I would definitely enjoy the trappings and bells and whistles of a higher end bike. But frankly, the minimal design of the track works for me. So all in all, I'm I'm really, really pleased with the setup.
0: I actually made the mistake of buying too nice of a bike when I got started mm-hmm. and thought that I needed a road bike. And it turns out I much prefer I have a cheaper commuter style bike right now. And I love it much more than I ever loved the road bike. Mm-hmm. Cost is definitely not everything when you're looking at getting a bicycle. Yeah, for sure.
1: For sure. But I guess the, the notion is you can get into this with an investment to be sure. Mm-hmm. Like if you bought everything new, you might spend say a thousand dollars. But of course the comparison is if you're offsetting some amount of driving and I'll put at minimum a 1000 miles on my commuter bike a year which is not massive but it's definitely offsetting quite a bit of say a second car. You know that's maybe four 3 months of a car payment for example and then your investment is paid off. It's an incredible uh, return on investment and that's not even including health benefits and everything else.
0: Right, and it's allowed your family to be able to be a one-car family. So the savings you get from that every year are just many times over the cost of the initial investment.
1: Certainly. So AAA data tell us that the average cost of owning and operating a new sedan in the U.S. is about eight thousand dollars. If you're driving a new SUV, it's closer to ten or eleven thousand dollars. Even if you're driving a used car, owning and operating a used car is going to cost you probably four to five thousand dollars a year. That's everything all told. Tires, maintenance, registration costs, all these things, insurance and the like. And so an investment, a one-time investment of a thousand dollars plus say even a couple hundred dollars of maintenance of your bike over the course of a year is far, far less obviously than even driving a used car around. And the average car also emits five to seven tons of CO2 a year. That's gone. So there's, there's savings, environmental impact. And of course, if you bike even just an hour, there's hundreds of calories burned. It's great for your, your health as well.
0: Absolutely. So you've talked a little bit about your current setup, but could you talk about how you see that changing as your kids get older?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I've been thinking a lot about that. And we were very interested in getting our kids on bikes early on. And so our youngest right now is on a balance bike and doing well with that. And our oldest is on a pedal bike. Um, and he has been for about a year completely skipped over training wheels and that sort of thing that's usually actually not necessary if you go the, the the push bike or balance bike route early on. But I'm hoping that for most local commuting, in fact, our my kids now will go with me to our local bakery, which is about a mile away, uh, without a problem. Mm-hmm. And so we can all bike independently. In terms of active commuting down to, say, to their school or daycare, by the time that they are... Maybe less interested in the Burley trailer only because they'll probably both be well established on pedal bikes in a year to two years from now. They will both be going to a school that's actually within our neighborhood. And so we're very lucky that that's only a mile away. So they'll be able to bike back and forth every single day and we won't have any car commuting to get to school. So I'm imagining that we'll transition to that. And then any longer sort of weekend adventure type things, they'll still be good in the Burley uh, trailer for, I think, a few years to come. Okay. Yeah, my hope is I can move from a trailer to them just being on bikes for most of our commuting.
0: That sounds great. Have you experienced the problem in your trailer? We have a much older version of the Burley, Mm -hmm. but the issue we had with our kids as they got older is that they sort of um, slumped into each other. (laughs) The weight seemed to be towards the middle, and then that created some problems with siblings as it does when one sibling <laughs> is invading the other one's sure. space. And so that was one reason why we use cargo bikes with our kids. Mm. And that has been better for us as they've gotten mm-hmm. older, where they're not both ready to be on pedal bikes, especially for long distances. Or we have some roads that at this point, I'm not quite comfortable with my kids being on, or they have really large mm-hmm. hills that they're not quite ready to get mm-hmm. up yet. So it, it, is that a problem with yours or with the newer model? Is that less of an issue than what I have experienced
1: now it's a great question we We have not yet experienced anything like that, so our kids are two and four, and so a total weight of seventy ish seventy five pounds between the two of them and so we haven't seen anything like that. Our model is i think now it's you know three years old, so so far, no issue, although you know it's close proximity regardless, and so they do sometimes get into conflicts and there's you know bopping each other on the head and these kinds of things happening. And you know, you're doing the thing where you're biking along and and like wind is rushing, you can hear these vague screams behind you and you're kind of yes. screaming back to them, calm down <laughs> as you're, you know, watching traffic and everything else. Yes, I have been there. <laughs> no different and probably in the end less dangerous than doing the exact same thing in a car on a busy road, right? <laughs> so
0: Yes, those kind of things happen anywhere.
1: <laughs> right, right. So but but for the most part, I've been so surprised that that there has been really minimal conflict and actually they've really loved it. In fact, when we get into the mode where especially early parts of summer when I'm when I'm not going into work in Tempe consistently but working from home more often and I'm biking them into daycare they are clamoring to go by bike they really enjoy it so I hope that that won't be the case one one other option I've been considering would be and this is kind of crazy I don't know that this is efficient at all but attaching to my bike uh what's I'm going to forget the name.
0: Like the tag along, where they have one where it's like they still have a seat and the pedals, or something different.
1: Yes. So yes. So that that sort of technology, but it's there's one that I'm thinking of that is like that. They have pedals, but there are actually two seats on a track mm. that you can adjust forward and backward. Okay. I wish I could remember the the brand, but I cannot. Um, but that one actually has all the accoutrement where you can actually have these shade structures that go over each seat. And the reason I'm interested in that one is because of, of that shade opportunity. So you can kind of extend our ability to actively commute into the summer a little bit so long as there's some shade. The heat's not too bad when you're biking, but the sun beating down on you is, is pretty tough. Right. So that might be an option we look into uh, in the future.
0: Okay. Well, if you think of the name of it, send me an email and I'll include it in the show notes so people are, who are interested can find it.
1: I'll do that. I'll, I'll look it up uh, just after.
0: Okay, great. So you've talked a little bit about how excited your kids are to be on a bike and how they learn to be on a pedal bike really young. I would love for you to chat a little bit about how you have approached fostering a love of cycling at a young age and what worked for your family.
1: Yeah, this is one of my favorite things. It's just been it's such a pleasant surprise. We we weren't attempting to be, you know, let's get our kids on bikes as early as possible. We just, we knew that we love to ride bikes and um, and we thought it'd be a great fit for our lifestyle. We don't have a a TV in the house. And in Arizona, we we have incredible weather most of the year. And so why not take advantage of being outside as much as possible? Biking just, you know, extends that and the adventure of it. And so we looked into, I I came across a, a website and I can't recall originally how, but it's a fantastic website called Two Wheeling Tots. And on that website, there are great reviews of every manner of toddler and kids' bicycles, including push or or balance bikes. And it dawned on me then that, oh, this might be an interesting way to go. In fact, I think there's an article on that website about how this was a, a useful way to go and you can avoid getting the training wheels and all of that. And that also contributed to my thinking about the design of bikes, too and getting our kids on there cuz you know little kids toddlers are proportioned differently than adults mm-hmm. um but unfortunately a lot of the cheaper bikes for kids are designed more like adult bikes um the the center of gravity is is much higher on the bike they're sort of stouter not long to the ground the handlebars and even like brakes if it comes with brakes are like adult size things and they make it more likely for the kid to crash and when they crash they fall farther and harder um the bikes are heavier all these things So there were two strategies I I realized were going to be important. One was to get the kids on balance bikes first and let them learn how to balance, which they can do incredibly early. Both of our kids at about two years of age were pushing themselves on balance bikes and and able to balance completely. And it really, in fact, they could probably get on pedal bikes, except their legs are simply too short. Right. Yeah. Until they reach about three years of age. And then it becomes important to think about the design of the bike. And so there again... Because I, I valued it so much, and the kids really loved the balance bikes, I invested in a more expensive toddler bike called a Noc, which is spelled C N O C. It's by Isla Bikes, which is I S L A Bikes. Uh, it's a UK company, and the bike that I bought for our older one, because he's the one on the pedal bike, is was three hundred plus dollars, which is you know quite a bit more than your standard Huffy or something like that. Right. But it is specifically designed for a little kid. It's wider. It's closer to the ground. All of its parts are designed for little hands and little feet. And I just I wanted something that maximized their potential for success and minimized the potential for crashing and burning um, so that they would, you know, more easily come to love it. And now we go out and my younger's on the balance bike, my older's on the pedal bike. And almost every single morning before we go off to work and school. Um, We'll bike around in our street in circles and take 10 or 15 minutes to do that. So almost every day they're on bikes now.
0: That's great. We had a similar approach, which was, you know, we don't care when our kids learn to ride a bike. I feel like that's the same as any other developmental milestone where, Mm -hmm. you know, by the time they're in school, no one knows who rode a bike first, just like no one knows who walked first or learned (laughs) to talk first. Those things all even out. Mm -hmm. But we love it so much and wanted, to be able to do those fun family activities together and to share something with them that we love so much. And it's different being a passive participant riding in a cargo bike or in a trailer than it is to be riding next to somebody and riding on the street yourself. Mm-hmm. But we also did the balance bike route. We got a Strider balance bike. Okay. And my son loved it when he got it for his second birthday, but he loved to park it. He would walk it around the yard and park <laughs> it various places. He was very uninterested in actually trying to ride it. Right. And that was the same until he was three and a half. That yeah. was that spring is when he suddenly decided, oh, I should ride this thing. And I think <laughs> that's because he had a friend who was also riding a balance bike. And then he went that spring from zero interest riding a balance bike to riding a pedal bike within just a few months.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: But it is interesting how, you know, I felt like we were really fostering this great environment for our kids to get on a bike. And I don't know if part of it is we're on a bike so much that it wasn't novel to them and Mm -hmm. just sort of like, oh, yeah, you get on a bike to go places. And (laughs) or if he just, you know, would rather dig in the dirt because he's two. And that's what two year olds sometimes want to do.
1: Totally. I think we see similar differences in in our kids. Our older kid got really quickly into the bike and on the balance bike, just within a couple of months, he was pushing himself and trying to get as fast as possible and loving going down hills, mm-hmm. which was like terrifying to us, but also kind of exhilarating and awesome. But our younger son is totally different. He He's totally content to slowly push himself along, barely get gliding at all. When he reaches a hill, he will stop and get off and walk the bike Next to him at his side, like all the way down the hill. And so you do have to have pretty incredible patience if you're going to go that route for very slow yes. bike rides. Um, <laughs> yes. But I feel like it's worth it in the end because, in either case, regardless, they will be young kids, seven, eight, nine, they'll be teenagers, whatever point in life, they will look back and not remember a time that they didn't know how to ride a bike. Right. I have this thing about. The things that you want inculcated, whether this becomes something that's important to them, active commuting or not, just the things that I think are great skills to have, I want them to be almost intuitive feeling like this is just a part of Mm -hmm. who I am. I just know how to do this. And in the same way, we have musical instruments around so that they're just, they know the feeling of piano keys under their fingers, whether they ever learn it or not. It's not foreign to them and a different thing whenever they see it later in life. And I think the same thing can be said for biking and active commuting. It's just something that is a normal part of of how they grew up and who they are. And it might make it easier in the future for them to adopt it if they so choose.
0: Yeah. I feel the same about a lot of those different points. And I think it will afford my kids a sense of independence at Mm. an earlier age when they'll be able to get around that way and be really comfortable on the road. Not just know how to ride a bike, but be more comfortable with the rules of the road and how to be interacting with cars on the road. Because we do that so much together as a family. For sure. And who knows? I mean, they may hate riding a bike when they get older, but right. at least they'll have that knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I'm very aware that this whole endeavor that our family is undertaking could could backfire at some point in their lives. But, <laughs> but it'll still be a part of them. You know, it'll still be something that they can come back to at a later time if they want to. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's something I didn't discover until I was an adult. It was much later that I... Began to experience the joys of getting around by bike or without a car, walking, busing. So,
1: yeah, same here. And that's actually, I think, a really good point because, because I, I, I'm the same. I didn't really discover this till later in life, and I think that's because, you know, obviously the systems that have been designed around us, the the urban or the physical environment around us, all of it's been designed not to promote walking and biking first, but instead to drive everywhere. You don't naturally necessarily come to it because you see people driving first and then walking and biking second. Uh, So if it's been part of their childhood, their upbringing, it will be less an alternative sort of lifestyle, I think, later on and perhaps more easily adoptable if they want it. And I think the other point you made about safety is actually a really good one, too. Like our kids, when we go out in the mornings, we're biking around in circles on the street in our neighborhood. They're really cognizant now of cars and the rule is whenever you see a car coming obviously you you immediately go to a sidewalk. And so and I'm they're never in the street without me there too. So I'm always kind of being vigilant, but they themselves now independently either one will see a car like coming out of a driveway or per- potentially turning onto our street and one of them will scream car and everybody <laughs> hits a sidewalk. Right. And they know to stop at every street corner be- and look every way and you know they're still very young. So I think feel like the inculcating the notion of safety is really helpful too.
0: Yes. We have tried to instill a very healthy fear of cars in our children. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> My wife, Kelsey, grew up that way too, being very afraid of, or the potential of danger in cars. And that's a, that's, a, that's a good thing.
0: Yes. So we've already touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to hear you articulate more what you see as the benefits of being a one-car family who's trying to incorporate active transportation in your life, both for you personally and for your family as a
1: whole. Oh, so many, <laughs> where to begin? <laughs> well, the the financial benefit is immediate, and I, I say that because I think you know everybody can connect to concerns about finances. And mm-hmm. the we've seen the median income for the average American family go up recently to you know closer to like fifty six or fifty eight thousand dollars a year, which is a good thing. But savings rates still haven't improved much, and and American families are saving like four to five percent of their take home income. So we're looking at just a couple thousand dollars a year is what people are saving outside of potentially any retirement or any other savings. I mean, you could double or triple that kind of savings by eliminating one of the average two cars that an American family has. And just the opportunity to do something like that and what that might mean to offset debt that people have, student debt, consumer debt, uh, I think is a really powerful idea if people can see how biking could become part of their life. That's obviously important. Um so that's a big one. I think if you have environmental concerns, obviously it's it's a a major piece of it. Food and diet are one of the and airplanes actually are are the biggest contributors to our carbon footprint, but after that cars are a big one. And you can like I mentioned you can eliminate 5 to 7 tons of CO2 emitted each year just by eliminating one car. The other part of it though, and I think you've alluded to this which uh, it's hard to articulate but I feel like it's really important. The way I describe it is you know when you're in a car Your the the job is to go from point A to point B, and you're usually doing that in this environment in which you live and work and play, and so your whole environment just kind of speeds by you in this blur, you know, as real to you as just a something on a movie screen. But if you're on your bike, you slow down. You're in it. You're feeling it. You're hearing Mm -hmm. it. You actually get to experience your environment. I think in a much more pleasant way, but in a much more real way. You're actually part of your community rather than just transporting yourself through it. And I feel like that's somehow important to community connectedness, um, which it is a real, that's a really important aspect of just being happy in your life um, that we lose when we're car commuting uh, most of the time.
0: Yes. I love that you're talking about community because that is one thing that I really strongly feel as I'm biking around that it's more enjoyable. And part of the reason it's more enjoyable is because it's easy to say hello to the people that I'm passing on the street. And you notice more things as you're going around. And I do feel more connected doing that. And I think that it's one of those intangibles that isn't the first thing you think of. I think Mm -hmm. often people associate bike commuting with environmental concerns. But as you said, my family takes airplane trips and that knocks out So much of the, I mean, not that they cancel each other out, but I'm not going to try and say that we don't emit a lot of CO2 because we do Mm -hmm. in our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, that for me, it's those other benefits that are the real driver behind wanting to do this lifestyle. It's self-reinforcing that there's so much enjoyment to be got from it. And I don't think that's something that people can fully grasp until, until you're doing it.
1: Yeah. For sure. And embedded in that, I mean, the, the happiness, the notion of happiness and connectedness driving is actually one of our key sedentary behaviors. So from the health and public health perspective, there are two main behaviors that really contribute to ill health because sedentary behavior can be nearly as bad for you as smoking. That's kind of the thing that's been tried it out recently. And it's relatively true. Uh, but outside of watching TV or screen time, spending time in cars is the, is the next most sedentary thing that we do this necessary transportation, you can turn at least part of it into a very active and connected thing that derives happiness and health at the same time, just by transitioning at least part of your commuting to to bikes. There are lots of ways to actually be happier. The the other thing, of course, is that people are generally less happy the more they're commuting by car. Mm -hmm. Um, But all the literature shows, as you might guess, active commuting elicits a ton of happiness. And so There's just this incredible disparity between how happy you are driving versus biking, and all that's right there if you just hop on your bike and go.
0: Yeah. So there are numerous benefits, but there are also impediments and challenges to incorporating active (laughs) transportation. Mm -hmm. What have you found to be the biggest challenges for you guys to be a one-car family and to bike, both in your location and your just generally where you are in life right now?
1: Yeah, so we do live in the suburbs and that means it's rarely the case that commuting for a purpose, so not just biking for enjoyment but actively commuting for some purpose, it's rare that that's going to be like a 1 or 2 mile venture. That's it's going to be 5 miles plus mm-hmm. one way most of the time. And so that means that number 1 you've got to you got to enjoy being on the bike that long or at least partly enjoy it and number 2 you've got to have the time. You've got to be able to work it into your schedule. I've worked it out such that you know, I can drop my kids off at daycare. And if I choose to bike into Tempe, for example, I can pull it off and be in a meeting by about 930. Now that's a little bit later than most people might start work. So you might have to have that kind of flexibility. However, that is a 20 mile bike commute. So that's a little bit different than what some people might have for a commute. But yeah, the, the flexibility of schedule, the time committed to it is a potential detriment. I think the flip side of that is a lot of people try to commit time to being physically active by going to a gym and carving out an hour a day or every other day or a few times a week. At least part of that can be supplanted by active commuting. And so you might just be reallocating time one sort of category to another. But that is definitely part of it. The other part, of course, is there are some reliability issues. So if you break down somewhere um, nobody's going to come to tow you, you're probably walking <laughs> or you know, carrying your bike to go somewhere if your chain breaks or something happens. One example of this, I, while I was on my sabbatical, actually, I had one spoke broken on my back wheel, but I s- decided to chance it and bike to Orange Theory, which is where my wife and I will work out a couple times a week. So I biked there. That's about a three and a half mile bike ride one way. So I got a little workout in, then I got my really intense cardiovascular workout in at Orange Theory and as I was just about a mile away biking home from there another spoke broke and then my wheel super wobbly and of course if you know <laughs> anything about the spokes once one goes or two goes it's it's really downhill from there right so i thought okay i'm going to have to get this fixed now otherwise i'm breaking down and i'm going to be stuck so i decided to bike the 2 miles west of Orange Theory to the bike shop to get my bike fixed cuz i was otherwise going to be entirely without transportation got there and they told me, I'm sorry, we can, we can fix this, but you're not getting it back till tomorrow. So that meant I was leaving my bike with them and I was running the now five miles home (laughs) (laughs) and which I did. And of course I was exhausted, but what was going to be, you know, a short jaunt over to Orange Theory and back home became this massive near triathlon style (laughs) event. So when you, you know, your bike breaks down, you truly are without that, the convenience of that, say second car, if you're a two car family, like many are. And you've got to live with the inconvenience of that. Last thing I'll say, I'm getting a little long-winded, but the last thing I'll say is obviously there's a quite a bit more coordination. So we are still a one-car family. And so my wife and I need to coordinate who's got the car, when, what does that mean for me biking somewhere, for example, or if I have evening events at ASU. You know, actually, the a thing that's happened with us more recently is that we've been depending on Uber in the evenings more, mm-hmm. which we. Justify because at, in aggregate, that's still considerably less than obviously spending on a second car. So there's just a lot of coordination that's required.
0: Right. Can you also talk a little bit about surviving the summer in Phoenix and what that looks like for you?
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I would love to hear how you survive the winter because we have, I think, opposite but kind of similar problems. Right. So we live in the hottest place in the country, <laughs> very <laughs> nearly anyway. It can reach, you know, 115 on the craziest days, like 119, sometimes 120. And that could potentially be dangerous to bike in. That also means that there are at least a couple months out of the summer that I really can't bike my kids to daycare. Or maybe I could in the morning because it's still high eighties, low nineties. But I certainly couldn't pick them up and bring them home in the afternoon when it is one fifteen. So that's I have to contend with that. It limits some of the utility of it. But I decided a couple years ago that. A tough part about living in Arizona is the heat because it is intense. And most people deal with it by going from one air-conditioned enclosed space to another. I decided I wanted to just own the heat. Mm-hmm. And you can adapt to some pretty severe weather circumstances. And so actually, most of my biking miles happen in the summertime. I mean, I have more flexibility then, but I'm, I just decided I'm going to be out in it. I'll carry a lot of water. I'll slather on a ton of sunscreen, and I'll do that multiple times a day. But I'm going to be out and I'm going to run my errands and I'll go to Target. I'll pick up the diapers. I'll do what I have to do in the heat. And so it's really a matter of, in that case, coordinating your stops. So I can be out in that kind of heat for maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes. But after that, it actually, I do have to worry about like heat stroke or something. So I'll make sure I have a library stop or some errand I've got to run to ensure that I get in and cool down before I make my next leg of my trip.
0: I love that. So we used to live in Austin before we moved to Bloomington. And mm. Austin is not as hot as Phoenix, but it gets up there in the summer. And we have weeks mm. on weeks above 100 degrees.
1: Well, plus you have the humidity, which is a, w- a way different deal. I feel like it can be worse than Arizona.
0: It's a different kind of challenge. Yeah. I really did find what you're saying that your body can adjust so much more than you think it can. and. The first summer I lived there, I was actually working on some urban farms. And so I was spending most of my time outside. And it was in the mornings. We were usually done by 12 or 1. Mm -hmm. But I think being outside that much, it helped my body get used to it as opposed to being in air conditioning all the time. Mm -hmm. And biking in the summer, it's such a, I mean, biking in extreme weather in general, because I feel like I have the same attitude here in the winter that it really is a mental game. And Just having the attitude of, I'm just going to do it, and I can handle it, and I'm going to be there eventually. (laughs) Yeah. I really loved, Mr. Money Mustache had an article about biking in the winter in Colorado, and how we shouldn't hunker inside during these more extreme times, that you can still go outside all through the winter. You can still be enjoying the outdoors, and in some ways, it's more enjoyable, because there's less people out there, and it feels like you have it to yourself.
1: That's totally true.
0: I've thought of that many times when I've been biking this winter. For us, the challenge was with kids that Neil and I, we can bundle up. Once you start biking, you warm up pretty quickly. Yeah. I actually find that in the winter, part of the problem is you're really cold when you start, but you warm up really quickly when you're biking, and then you get too hot and sweaty mm. because you're wearing mm-hmm. all these layers. And so it's hard to find that right balance of not being too cold, but then also not getting too hot as you're going. Yeah, And for the kids, we have a canopy that goes over a bucket bike. And so they're protected from the wind, which is the worst part of the cold. And then they can just wear all the layers, have a blanket, be wrapped up. And in Bloomington, we have a different situation than what you do, where you were saying most of your trips where you're doing this kind of utilitarian cycling are 10, 15 miles away, where mm-hmm. for us everything is within a couple miles. Mm. So even if it's really cold, I think we're going to be there in 15 minutes. I can handle anything for 15 minutes. So <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's great. That's a great mantra. That's That's useful.
0: And I also found that in Austin, I don't know if this is your approach or not, but wearing a lightweight, long-sleeve, button-down shirt was a game changer for me once I realized it actually does not feel cooler to be in a tank top with the sun beating on my body, Mm. that just getting something really lightweight to put on top made me feel cooler because it was protecting me from the brunt of the sun's wrath.
1: Yeah, counterintuitive, but totally true. I've got a couple of REI shirts that are you know, unfortunately synthetic fiber, but they are lightweight and they are SPF kind of rated mm-hmm. and they're long sleeve. And so I'll actually, yeah, I'll wear, I wear long, only long sleeve shirts in the summertime when I'm biking for that extra protect, protection. And it, it does actually help, I think, in terms of temperature regulation too.
0: And for the winter, the most challenging part for me has been to keep my hands warm, mm. that the rest of my body is fine, but that in the really cold, my fingers are cold. Yeah, And I'm actually still searching for the perfect pair of gloves. So if any <laughs> listeners that live in cold environments have a recommendation, Neil and I are all ears.
1: <laughs> well, I'd like to add to that challenge to your listeners then too. So The opposite problem for me here in the summer is too much heat for the kids. And so I haven't attempted to take them out in late June through to July and probably most of August because it is just too hot. And so I think some sort of misting device Mm. coupled with the trailer could be enough of a solution to get us the half hour to 40 minute commute to daycare. But I just don't know how to mount that. I don't know what that would look like. I've been looking for all sorts of solutions and just have not found a temperature-regulated kind of system that would work for the kids in a trailer. So if anybody, yeah, anybody has an idea on that, let us know.
0: Yeah, let's crowdsource these
1: problems.
0: (laughs) I feel like we've hit on this a little bit, but I feel like it's slightly different than what the benefits are of relying less on a car. So the question is, what motivates you to continue on this path of a less car-centric lifestyle? What's the thing that makes you want to go out on those 115 degree days in the middle of the summer?
1: I think it's primarily, well, There's a, there are a lot of things operating in my head when I'm doing these things, but I think the key to a happy life, the keys to a happy life are very simple. And it's actually this type of downshifting behavior that's not anti-consumerist. We live in a consumer society. We will continue to buy our products and services, but it's just less of an emphasis on that and all the conveniences that are meant to come along with a consumer culture and introducing a little bit of the a little bit more manual labor and a little bit of more self-reliance on things like, for example, active commuting actually elicits a ton of joy. And I think it's because not only the self-reliance type of thing, but also the way I refer to this as voluntary simplicity. You're simplifying in ways that give you more room to think about and engage in your community, your life, your relationships, And all of that's really key. And I always think about it in terms of health, wealth, happiness, and sustainability. And those behaviors, those simplifying behaviors, oftentimes maximize positive outcomes in all those four areas, health, wealth, happiness, and sustainability. And so it's engaging in these behaviors that are one or two simple things, but deliver me and my family and perhaps the world in terms of larger environmental benefits and things so much positivity, so many positive benefits, it seems like, why would I do anything else?
0: I really love that way of looking at it. And it has been really true for me as well, that it's hard to isolate one specific factor because they all mm. influence each other and they feel so connected.
1: Yeah. I think that's, that's entirely the case is that they're... Um, it, well, and this is an important point, I think, that I write about a lot on my blog, for example, but the notion that when we think about the behaviors we engage in, we're very good at compartmentalizing things. And I think that's because our consumer culture is built that way. We try to sell and buy products that solve problems in this area of your life or that area of your life. But really when it comes to, again, health, wealth, happiness, and sustainability, that those behaviors that are key to positive benefits across those are, are, are overlapping, are intertwined. They they're synergistic that's the term i'm looking for they work together mm-hmm. and they amplify the benefits of each other so implementing even just a few of these behaviors is a much more powerful behavior change type of model than how we usually go about things is for example i want to you know i want to be healthier so i'm just going to focus on my diet and i'm going to just extract from my diet this whole class of foods or i'd like to be healthier so i'm going to work out more so let me just take myself to a gym and i'm just going to force that into my life but actually if you can do things that compile that Create these behavioral, these synergistic behavioral complexes. This kind of model—it's actually a more efficient way to go. It's um, you get a lot more out of, a lot more bang for your buck, I suppose.
0: Absolutely. I like to end the show by asking guests to offer advice to our listeners who are curious or interested in trying to rely less on a car. And I would love if you could specifically speak to families who live in a suburban area because I think that can seem especially daunting. Mm. Because as we've talked about, the environment is not set up to facilitate that in many cases. The environment was built with automobiles instead of people in mind. So I'd love for you to offer advice on either mindset shifts that would help with that or specific practical ways for people to get started on this path.
1: So I'll offer maybe a spectrum of thoughts. First is the, the small scale stuff, which is Experiment with it at first. And so the way that we started, as I mentioned, we parked one car and then just began pretending that thing didn't exist and then just working with the one car that we had to see how it felt. And if you're a one car family, can you park that car and just see how it goes? But that, of course, means a little bit of planning will go a very long way. So do you have trails nearby? If you've never tried them before, probably you should identify where trails connect to protected lanes on on roads and things like that. So you know the systems that you can use. If you're in a more sprawling area like me, you think about the places you go most often and what trails connect you, what systems do you have to kind of compound? So biking to the bus stop, for example, or biking to the light rail, things like that. I had to think a lot about that in the various commutes that I make. That's on the small scale side. I'm actually an advocate of just crazy, large scale, all at once cold turkey behavior change. (laughs) Okay. And the reason is, like I said, people actually are more successful at behavior changes when dramatic things happen in their life. So why not just introduce the dramatic thing? And and so giving up a car entirely, essentially what that does is create a default. If you have the crutch of the thing that you're trying to move away from and it's there, it's pretty easy to fall back to. And then therefore then takes quite a bit more discipline to avoid or ignore the thing that's calling you back to it, (laughs) right?
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And so if it's gone, you're just simply forced to do the other thing, which I know sounds crazy. And so you have to have a mindset and be prepared for, for that.
0: It sounds crazy, but I think that really appeals to also a certain type of personality mm-hmm. because I found that to be so true as well and that I loved having the choice removed, mm-hmm. that I didn't have to think about when I was going to take the car. I just knew I wasn't and that I think that I would have spent so much more mental energy agonizing over when I was going to do it and when I wasn't and should I or shouldn't I and that it felt easier to remove the choice.
1: Yep. I really feel like that is a it's a very strong way to elicit lasting behavior change. There are very few strategies that work for people when it comes to especially health behavior change. But if your circumstances just dictate a behavior, (laughs) then you're going to do it we approach screen time the same way. So we ditched our TV. If there's no TV on the wall, there's no TV to watch. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we can pop open our computers, but just removing the thing that you're trying to change, that creates what I refer to as healthy defaults. The default now is for you to do. The easier choice, the more likely choice is the choice that you're wanting to make. So I guess more broadly, the advice would be, can you set up your personal environment such that you create these healthy defaults? And this could apply to any behavior change, but in the case of active commuting, you have the equipment there so you can use it? Have you removed the opportunity for the behavior that you're trying to avoid? Doing those things makes the default the healthy one.
0: And that could be the case even on something small, that even if you just say, okay, from now on, I'm only going to bike to the grocery store, mm-hmm. or I'm only going to bike my kids to school. You know, it could be one aspect, but making a commitment to do one part of your routine in this way and seeing how that goes, it seems like another way to apply that principle, but on a smaller scale.
1: Yeah, for sure. I liken this to uh, vegetarianism and veganism. My family is primarily vegetarian, but I do a lot of research on these lifestyle choices too. And I think it's it turns people away from trying more plant-based diets, which is also a healthier, more sustainable thing to do by telling people, well, if you're vegetarian, you absolutely, without fail, avoid these foods. But the degrees, I think, are more inviting. So if you're mainly plant based, mm-hmm. you're vegetarian 75% of the time, that's a huge benefit to the environment and your health. Um, but you don't have to be so absolutist. So I, I think that's an absolutely valid and important approach for people who are just wanting to try to decrease, say, their transportation time in a car rather than eliminate it altogether.
0: All right. Well, I think we can wrap up there. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and share your experience with our listeners.
1: That was my pleasure. It was so much fun.
0: And can you let listeners know what the best way is to connect with you?
1: Sure. So uh, maybe a couple of ways. I blog at a website called Practically Awesome. There's no dot com on that. So actually, the dot comes before the M-E in awesome. So it's Practically dot I guess. Okay. So my blog is there. And my wife and I run a podcast called Matrimony. Last part is spelled M-O-N-E-Y. And you can find that on any place you get your podcasts and You can learn about voluntary simplicity as it relates to finances as well.
0: All right. That sounds great. And I'll link to all those things in the show notes. Great. Thanks. Thanks again, Chris. Appreciate it. I'll link to all the bikes, equipment, articles, and sites mentioned in this episode in the show notes. If you have any thoughts or suggestions about the show or ideas for Chris on the best ways to cycle with young children in extreme heat. Be sure to leave a comment on Instagram, at FamilyPedals or at FamilyPedals.com. As a new show, I would so appreciate if you could take the time to leave a rating or review on iTunes. It really helps get the word out about the show so new listeners can find it. Next time, I'll be joined by Caitlin Macklin, who is part of a car-free family in Austin, Texas. I love what she has to say about how to be flexible and make changes when you are unable to bike. She also shares one of my all-time favorite biking stories about how she moved her schoolhouse to its new location entirely by bicycle. I hope you'll join me then.